Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. I'm Pat Leahy. I'm joined in studio by my colleagues Sarah Barden and Fia Kelly will be joining us in a little while to talk about the prospect of a presidential election. But first, with one constitutional amendment disappearing into the rearview mirror, another is hovering into view. Article 41 of the Constitution, entitled The Family, with a capital F, recognises the family as what it calls the natural, primary and fundamental unit group of society, as a moral institution possessing inalienable and imprescriptible rights, antecedent and superior to all positive law. As if that wasn't enough, it goes on to discuss the place of women in the home. And Article 41, Section 2, reads as follows. In particular, the state recognises that by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. The state shall, therefore, endeavour to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to the neglect of their duties in the home. To discuss all this, I'm joined by Laura Cahalan from the University of Limerick. Laura, this strikes many people as archaic and sexist. The Taoiseach said as much in the Dáil yesterday, and his government now proposes to abolish completely this article from the Constitution. Is it just a, a symbolic act? Is it just gesture politics? Or, 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 or what would it actually mean? Well, that's actually quite a difficult question. And for many years, lawyers have asked themselves that question. Was it meant to be a purely symbolic provision or was there something more meant by it? And I spent a bit of time last year um, going through the archives on this and going through the doll debates and trying to find out what actually um, what was the purpose behind this provision. And I haven't been enlightened by by what I found there. But um, I mean, it was something that de Valera in particular felt very strongly about. It was something the Catholic Church felt strongly about. And we see letters going over and back between de Valera and, and McQuaid about this. And there's lots of influence coming from papal encyclicals on this. And then when you go into the Dáil debates, there's questions from members of the opposition on that very issue, you know, is it actually um, symbolic? Is there actually any intention to provide financial assistance to women? And unfortunately, we don't get very clear answers from de Valera on this. Um, I mean, he he goes on to say that 
um, the state should endeavour to ensure that women are not forced to work, which is the wording of the provision. But then when asked, how are you going to do that? He says, well, we, we have to leave the methods open. We can't tie the hands of the legislature. So unfortunately, he doesn't really ever answer that question of how should the state ensure that women are not going to be forced into working? And unfortunately, we never had a case taken on that, um, which would have given us an answer finally as to whether or not there's any actual economic obligations on the state arising from this provision. And does the fact that it has never been relied upon in court indicate that the belief amongst lawyers and 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 those who professionally interpret the constitution uh, I, I suppose uh, d- does that signify a belief on their part that it 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 would be useless in litigation that no court would uh, rely upon it to impose duties on the state I think at this stage, that probably is the view. If it had been raised earlier on when the Supreme Court was in its radical phase around the 1970s, mm-hmm. you could almost see the Supreme Court um, deciding that there was an economic obligation. Um, in today's world, it's very difficult to see the Supreme Court coming to that um, kind of a conclusion because of the the views now that you know we have a very strict separation of powers and that economic issues are very much in the realm of the executive and the courts should not get involved with those sorts of issues unless it's very, very clear. And the only place in the Constitution that is very, very clear about these types of economic obligations is the obligation to provide free primary education um, for all citizens. Other than that, the Constitution is quite vague on these things. And so the Supreme Court generally don't like to get involved in these issues. At the same time, one one of the things that strikes me about it is that there, there are in in Article Forty Five what are called the directive principles of social policy, and that lays down all sorts of things about how society should be organised and the sort of obligations that there should be uh, on the state and uh, about economic rights and and uh, and so forth. But it says very specifically in the introduction to that article that the application of those principles uh, shall be in the care of the Oireachtas and shall not be uh, capable of being relied upon by any court uh, in 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 litigation, whereas the the provisions are that this provision that we're talking about isn't in that uh, is, isn't in that. So it's not specifically stated as are the other social and economic principles. It's not specifically stated that it shouldn't be relied upon by a court. And that's an excellent point, and that's something that um, I've asked myself in looking at this provision as well. I mean, if it was meant to be non-justiciable, if it was meant to be purely symbolic, then surely it should have been put into Article 45. And actually, originally there was another part of the article which um, mentioned the inadequate strength of women and not wanting women to become part of professional unsuited to their sex. That part later did go into Article 45, but yet the nub of it 
remained within the article on the family. So that's particularly interesting. Um, and also what's interesting is a comment by a former um, Supreme Court judge, Brian Walsh, in the late 1980s, where he actually expresses surprise that the article has never come before the courts. And he did refer to it as a protective guarantee. And he expected that at some stage it would come before the courts and that the courts would outline exactly what was intended by the article. But that never happened. Never happened. If it has been essentially a eunuch in law, um, would getting rid of it have any practical effect on how we're governed? Um, Not really. I mean, you could make a very weak argument that while it is still there, there is some possibility that somebody could take that argument that a mother is being forced into work out of economic necessity when she wants to stay home and and look after her children. You could make that argument, but I don't think you would get very far with it. And by today, that article is so paternalistic and insulting. The language used in it is very insulting towards women. And I think pretty much everybody at this stage has agreed that we would simply be better off getting rid of it or maybe um, amending it in some way. But given the difficulties with that, I think the government possibly has come to the right decision in just simply taking it out. I want to bring Sarah in at this stage. Sarah, you are a woman. Are you insulted by the text of Article 41.2? I think it's a relic of a different era, um, you know, and as Laura says there, it is quite, uh, the language is quite sexist and one would have imagined that the intention was to, um, when it was placed in our constitution, was to, I suppose, keep women within the home and make them know their place and, and that place be in the home. And it's it's not necessarily in tune with current Irish society. But I think there is a there is a question mark out here over as to whether or not it's appropriate to have a straightforward deletion. Um, and uh, and I, I know Laura's put forward a very strong argument. Uh, but there has been a constitutional convention which examined this issue and recommended that it, 88% of people recommended that it be amended to make it gender neutral. Um, a, department, a Department of Justice task force was then established and it came to similar conclusions. In fact, it went heavily against a straightforward deletion saying that that would leave no recognition to the value um, of work within the home. And so it, it's kind of bizarre to have a situation then where you have two bodies uh, recommending amending the constitution and the government taking a decision to delete it but not necessarily explaining why they've made that decision. And why do you think that they've gone for that straight deletion? Yeah, one would imagine that it's to do with the allocation of financial resources. I mean, in that departmental task force, while it makes the recommendation not to delete it, it says, you know, that has to be done with respecting the role that the government has uh, a right in deciding how funds are allocated. So in in the back of the government's mind, I'm sure it's saying it's looking at um, if it places the value of care within the home into the constitution, that that potentially gives carers a constitutional right to a better better financial resources than the, they currently have. This was the recommendation of the Constitutional Convention in 2013, wasn't it? It was to make the article gender neutral and to recognise the role of carers. Laura, I wonder if that wouldn't give an added legal weight to it, whatever about the article being in the Constitution since 1937, if it was to be be amended, would it be more likely that a court would rely on that sort of, that that proactive sense uh, to recognise an actionable nature to the provision? 
That's very difficult um, to answer. And I mean, as Sarah mentioned, I, I think that's probably the reason that the government has decided to go for a straightforward deletion rather than to replace the provision with something else. I mean, the, the sort of wording that has been recommended um, by the government's task force and by others, the words um, endeavour to ensure support, um, that generally would not and mean any financial obligation on the part of the state and it could be argued that the state has carried out or has fulfilled that duty by providing things like carers benefit and carers allowance and these sorts of things but with anything the constitution means whatever it to mean um, and so anytime you change it or anytime you do something to it that means you're leaving it open to another um interpretation possibly that you hadn't anticipated. And uh, Laura, there's been an argument uh, about which I think we'll probably hear more of over the coming years about the potential insertion of social and economic rights into the Constitution, a right to housing, to health care, to a basic level of income, that that sort of thing. Would that require a complete rewriting or reimagining of the constitution or is it something that could be done in a relatively straightforward way? I don't think it's something that's straightforward. I think something like that it would require quite a lot of thought and it does require a lot of rethinking on how we view the role of the courts and the role of the constitution. As I say, the courts generally see their role as um, strictly within the separation of powers and so not dictating economic issues to the government. Um, so something like that would have to be very carefully thought through in terms of the wording and in terms of the precise duties um, and the role that the courts would have in terms of interpreting those types of provisions. Um, but I suppose in a way it, it's good that we're having these conversations now about this article and also about you know those other particular uh, socio-economic type articles like healthcare and housing because inevitably these are going to come up over the next few years. You do definitely get the sense though that this, with this particular referent, referendum that there's sort of a rush to have it in October and that the conversations that we're having now have been have been neglected up until now because obviously there was a referendum on the Eighth Amendment one that many people had fought quite intently for 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 three decades and now we have two referendums coming up in in, in October. The issue of blasphemy has sort of been debated in in, in a in public forum for for years, whereas this particular one it's a bit more complex and it's it's, it's probably not as easy um, to argue with and. There, de- there definitely is a sense that the government is now just saying, OK, we'll have this in October, we'll delete it and not having the necessary conversation that needs to take place. Because what essentially has happened over the last number of weeks is the Minister for Justice took a memo to Cabinet recommending this referendum occur. Um, and it wasn't agreed at the Cabinet uh, table because the Minister for Children, Catherine Zappone, um, with the support of the Minister for Social Protection, Regina Doherty, said, you know, we need a bit more consultation with some of the female members of the Oireachtas, um, they, which is called the Women's Caucus. And they had a meeting and they met with the Minister for Justice. And basically it was a conversation that occurred. And then the following week, the Minister for Justice went back to the cabinet table looking for agreement, which he then secured. But the Women's Caucus hadn't actually given, you know, their support to what was being proposed by Charlie Flanagan. Well, they think the conversations that that Laura uh, is is having um, with yourself there, that that these conversations are being neglected and that there is a rush to, 
to have a referendum without proper consultation about what exactly the effect of this will be because they do fall on the side of the Constitutional Convention and the Departmental Task Force. A significant number of them believe that it shouldn't be a straightforward deletion and that the state should recognise the value of uh, care within the home and that that should be what is reflected um, in the question that is put to the people in October. And you have a situation now where I suppose... uh, as we've said, this is largely a symbolic um, clause within our constitution, but it does harp back to a different era. era. It does um, provoke a feeling that uh, within many women that the constitutional clause is quite sexist. And I think, you know, people will maybe rush to support it without having the conversation that needs to take that needs to take place. So, you know, I I, I don't think this one is go- going to be a very easy, is easy and as easy a sell as the government had anticipated it would be. And that's entirely of their own making because they haven't engaged in the proper consultation with the like if you look back at the referendum on the Eighth Amendment, we couldn't have had any more consultation. You know, we had a citizens assembly we, consultations coming out our ears. In this room no more so than any, but uh, we had consultation on every aspect of the legislation, um whereas uh, of the referendum and indeed the legislation that would follow. Whereas with this particular issue, it's just sort of here's your here's your uh here's the menu. You, you know, you don't get to you don't get to pick anything but this particular this particular uh, appetizer and you know they're now putting that to the people and I, I, I genuinely think that it may potentially be one of these referendums where you know in the final three weeks of the campaign somebody comes out and argues against it and it's it's defeated because the government hasn't um, done it um, in, the, in the proper fashion L- Laura are there arguments you, you, you've laid out uh, strong arguments to to get rid of the article are there any arguments that you've heard that could gain traction to keep it? Well, it's it's an argument I've actually I've made myself, um, having looked at the the recommendations of the government's task force, um, they they laid out a different. They said, you know, we could delete it outright, but they didn't agree with that. They said we could keep it, make it gender neutral, include a reference to carers, and include the wording endeavour to ensure support. Or they said, you know, we could put something about carers into Article 45. Those were those th- their three options. And I disagreed with all of those because, um, or, or with the two amendments at least, because um, if you're going to the bother of actually amending this article, I think it should have some sort of practical effect rather than amending it simply to make it um, more politically correct or to make it look a little bit nicer. And my suggestion was that if we were going to actually amend this provision, that maybe we should actually make it work in, in the way it was possibly always intended to work. And that is to put something in there which says that the state shall ensure that carers um, should be supported. Um, the problem is, I can't ever see that happening because it would mean such a financial obligation on this. Something governments like to do is to tie their hands in that way. But as Sarah um, was saying, we've we've never had that conversation. And I think that's what's such a pity about the fact that the government have rushed ahead and said, let's just delete it, is we've missed out on that important phase of discussions around that and on what we would actually like from this provision if we were to keep it. Sarah, can you Sarah. see any campaign against this proposal when it comes? Well I do think it's kind of bizarre that um, when the announcement was made that we had a referendum that there wasn't I suppose a rush to welcome it you know which is 
which normally takes place when referendums of such magnitude occur. You know, people like the Women's Council, indeed female members of the Oireachtas, I would have expected that they would have come out and welcomed it and they haven't done so. It's the dog that didn't bark. Well, I, I would just imagine that there may be an underlying uh, feeling of, um, not resentment, that's not the right word, but that there may be uh, of opposition to what's being proposed by the government that we haven't quite heard yet. Because as Laura said, the conversation hasn't taken place and we're now in a race against time where um, you know the government has to produce the legislation before uh, to, to have the referendum. It has to produce it before. The, t- the timetable is pretty tight on, on, on putting the furniture in place for this. Yeah, exactly. Well, as I said, we're in a race against time. We're, it's October 25th that it's scheduled for, which means that the legislation will have to be introduced as soon as this doll comes back from its summer recess to, in order for it, uh, for the referendum to occur. I think as well, you know, Laura was saying there about, you know, st- straightforward deletion and why would you necessarily uh, amend it or whatever and I think there is an argument that could be put forward as to the constitution is a is a statement of what the what the state should be and you know there is an argument that therefore that the state the constitution should reflect the uh, the value of work within the home but as Laura says placing that in the constitution may uh, and I know she said it may not but it also may have some financial and legal implications for the government I think that's a risk that they're unwilling to take but if they actually just came out and explained their rationale for it we may be in a different sphere but it's sort of this is what we've agreed and nobody has necessarily explained it. And th- those questions that we're having uh, a debate on now will arise, you know, maybe not n- next week or the week after when we all go on our holidays, but they definitely will appear in the final weeks of a referendum campaign. OK, well, as John Charles McQuaid once said, show me the money. We'll leave that there and we'll move on. And our colleague Fia Kelly joins us now. Fia, uh, you're collaborating with uh, Sarah on this morning's lead story, independent TDs seek presidential candidate. Uh, Will there be a contest? Michael D declared yesterday, no surprise to readers of the Irish Times or to anybody else. But uh, the question now is, will there be a contest? Will there be a Sinn Féin candidate? Will there be an independent candidate? Yeah, I think there will be. And I think the the chances of an election have increased given that there now seems to be some sort of coherence in the approach that independent members of the Rockers are taking that Michael Fitzmaurice has kind of appointed himself yeah appointed himself well it depends if it lasts actually you know uh, that Michael Fitzmaurice has appointed himself as the organiser in chief of what's looking like some sort of primary contest within the Oireachtas to see which of the aspirant candidates mostly among the Shannons uh, can garner the most signatures uh, you know we, we, they need 20 signatures from the Dáil and the Shannon I mean they should have the numbers Apparently, if they're thir- prepared to act together. yeah by Fitzmaurice's reckoning there are 33 independent members of the Dáil and Shannon and he says you can take about 10 off that uh, because for example he thinks that Alice Mary Higgins, let's face it, is not going to vote for an independent candidate because she's the daughter of the sitting president. And then he said there are some considerations like constituency, former constituency colleagues of Michael D, like Noel Grealish and Galway West, although he says he will sign somebody's papers if they're close enough to the Magic 20. So according to Fitzmaurice, there's about like you know 20 to 25 people realistically who can sign somebody's papers, and he says that will only allow one person to race. And in order to make sure that they do get one person to race, he is advocating this approach whereby all the candidates would come together and agree that the person amongst those who can get the most signatures of the 20 to 25 
will then win. So it will be up to the others to release their 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 supporters to back the 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 candidate to come out on top. And that's a big question to ask because someone could say, for example, I want to vote for. Jared Crockwell doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to vote for John Freeman. So there's a, a bit to go on that. But I think I was listening to Finian McGrath speak earlier on. He also has appealed to people to come forward uh, to express a view if they want to run for the, the presidency. Um, he said that he would be on board with Michael Fitzmaurice's approach to ensure they do get somebody into the race from the Oireachtas and then the rest can go touring the councils of Ireland over the next few months to see if they can get the record for uh, back the backing of four county councils as is required. Sarah, this sounds like tremendous news entirely for political reporters looking at a silly season bereft of news. Um, but the six million dollar question: Who amongst the talented, the, the bank of talented uh, uh, contenders, uh, are, are likely to get the nomination? Well, I don't know. It's it's kind of gas, isn't it? Really, the whole thing, but. Uh, I would imagine that if you're faced with the prospect of Kevin Sharkey, Jared Crockwell, Michael Fitzmaurice or Joan Freeman, that Joan Freeman may find herself the winning candidate out of uh, that scenario. Um, you know, uh, Fiat was mentioning the independents. Like if you look at the independents, obviously people like Shane Ross, Catherine Spone, Kevin Boxer-Moore and John Halligan have all declared for Michael D. Higgins so the numbers are sort of dwindling uh, by the minute and I think the only prospect for an independent candidate to be elected from the 20 Oireachtas members is if they come up with this haphazard you know way of of uh, for Is that likely to be one of their number I wonder or could they agree to nominate an outsider from the Oireachtas if if, if such a candidate transpired? Well they could yeah but I think They could do anything I I think it's quite clear though that you know Jared Crockwell kind of wants his name on the ballot paper it seems Joan Freeman does too. Mm. Kevin Sharkey, you know, has his poster ready for uh, president for his presidential election campaign. So it seems like they, act, you know, it's going to be quite interesting to watch. So I'm trying to say, you know, there will be a bit of ego involved here where people believe that they should be the candidate that the independents, uh, you know, flock behind. And, you know, it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be good fun for people like you and I to watch. But I think it's it probably won't uh, be the best start to whoever they do choose in the long run to their campaign campaign for it to be played out in such a you know at the same time going through a process or you know a proto primary process like that can sometimes be an advantage to yeah uh, you show you you can show that you're a winner that you know you tested your ideas and your campaign out amongst a section of your peers and they've deemed you to be the best candidate so it's kind of like you know be it that they're senators yeah be it the senators but they they might not be senators like you know Sarah's right that a lot of independents have declared for Michael D Higgins but as far as I remember some of them said I'm supporting Michael D but if somebody wants to get into the race, I will sign their papers, but I am supporting Michael D. And this was a powerful dynamic in the similar stage in the last presidential Mm. election when, uh, you know, people were keen to facilitate Mm. the nomination of people in the interests of a democratic Mm. contest and so forth. And that could be the same. That could be the same, but not necessarily campaign for them. Fitzmaurice says he has 12 he sent out around Robin email yesterday to all the independents saying, you know, this is my idea, what do you think? Yeah, like, just, just like, explain the steps to us. Fia. Yeah, so like, you know, we, we, ha- we now have the president declaring that he wants to stand again. Um, Jared Crockwell said that he did it late in the game. Well, actually, he didn't. He did it quite early. Mary McAleese waited until September to do this. Wait until the presidential order was signed. The presidential order will not be signed until September, a number of weeks out from polling day. Then nominations will be open, and then a couple of weeks before polling day, nominations will close. Um, so I think what we could see perhaps 
like let's not discount the fact that, that someone may come to the fore who we don't yet know of, a high profile candidate with the advantage of entering late into the game, but a buzz behind them, you know, big name. So you could see a situation where the 20 or 25 Oireachtas candidate uh, members agree that they would back one person, but not finalise who they're backing until quite close to September or close nominations. There is the added complication, though, for example, if you look at the rural... Independent Alliance, I think that's their, their official title, the Matthew McGrath, Michael Healy Ray, Danny Healy Ray, Michael Collins. They've already aligned themselves to Joan Freeman and have said that they're unwilling to support Jared Crockwell. So you could have a scenario where the 20 members, you know, that eventually they find 10 of them support Jared mm. Crockwell, 10 of them support Joan Freeman. You know, so it's a, 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 I suppose it's a little bit more complicated than perhaps some people are, are, are making it out to be, as I said. They are politicians, they have egos, and I'm sure that if it was a 10 versus 10 scenario that you could have quite a messy situation erupt. And then there's the added complication of the local authorities because Fianna Fáil have issued um, their diktat from to their party uh, TD senators, but also to their councillors to support uh, the uh, President Michael D. Higgins um, for his second term in office. It's likely Fianna Fine Gael are going to do that uh, today also. And parliamentary party meeting this evening. And that... Uh, as the Taoiseach said this morning at a doorstep that this will apply to its party councillors as well. So if Sinn Féin take the option on Saturday to field a presidential candidate and for for their party members obviously to support um, their candidate, you're left with a very difficult scenario then to get four local authority members. I know Fiak was touching on that this morning um, in his analysis, but it, it, it it's it's kind of there's a there's a lot of hurdles it seems in the way for an independent candidate to get on the ballot paper, and one would just wonder as you know everyone packs off and goes on their holidays next uh, next week whether or, or not um, they will have enough time to to get the the required level of support. I think actually on that I, I don't think we haven't really heard from Joan Freeman whether she's open to this you know. Michael Fitzmaurice style approach yeah. indications are that she hasn't even considered it that she's kind of fl- ploughing her own furrow mm. for now I suppose that the best that any of those candidates can hope for is that the councillors ignore the diktat from party headquarters and that is not uh, an impossibility Would given we've already s- no no that councillors have and I think like some people kind of accept that that's going to happen like they say like we tell councillors to do one thing they do the exact opposite <laughs> that's just the way of the world like and if you look at Cavan County Council the Fianna Fáil leader in Cavan County Council has already scheduled or wants to schedule a special meeting to hear from these candidates and says he's heard no diktat from HQ so as far as he's concerned it doesn't exist and if you go back to 2011 um Fianna Fáil stayed out of the race now. It's different this time. They're actually backing a certain candidate. But Fianna Fáil councillors were instrumental on both Fingal and Dublin City in supporting David Norris's candidacy to get him into the race. So, you know, the grand tradition of councillors thumbing their nose at the party leadership may apply again here. And, and exercising the, the power and ex- because they have it. They have the power. They have the power under the Constitution and they'll probably want to use it. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, the attitudes of the councillor ranks of the country to their respective party leaderships will be interesting and look I don't think the party leaderships would really come down the heavy on any councillor who decides to support an individual candidate like at the end of the day they don't really have any skin in the game apart from the fact that they said they want Michael D to continue it would be different where Fine Gael standing a candidate or Fianna Fáil standing a candidate but they're not so it'll be kind of a harmless consequence free expression of independence from the party councillors if they do so Well we're joined now by our columnist Noel Whelan a long time uh, observer and commentator on presidential contests Noel 
do you see a contest taking shape here? I think the chances of a contest are still 50-50. I'm not convinced that one is inevitable just because all of the parties and some of the independents, as it were, are sniffing on the prospect of whether they will contest. Um, we were exactly at this point, although a few weeks later, in uh, 2004, when Mary McAleese was up uh, for uh, re-election, she had made an announcement uh, again, a little later, but that in, in early September that she was going to recontest previous January, and the Kenny then Taoiseach and Fine Gael leader, sorry, and the Kenny then Fine Gael leader had said that he would um, support her if she was being re-elected. So that's a key the Fianna Fáil situation as relates to Michael D. Higgins. Him and Ryan was in the mix. Uh, the Labour Party, ironically, Michael D. Higgins was not to get into the race. That's, that's right. Mary McAleese. So there was a similar flurry of a few weeks where the prospect of an election looked real. It fizzled out. When the, when, when the reality of trying to contest against a strong popular incumbent, as was McAleese, as is now McAleese Higgins, um, sharpened a bit. So I think there's no guarantee there's still been an election. There's a greater prospect. I think there might have been a month ago. I think Michael Diaz not surprised anybody by saying he's going to run the independence and Sinn Féin of others have not surprised anybody by at least keeping attention focused on themselves for a few weeks around whether or not they will or will not run. Is Michael D beatable? Um, I think in order to answer that question, you have to look not just at the quantitative polling. You'll appreciate this, Pat. You know, presidents, incumbent presidents who are good at their job um, get 80 and 90 percent approval ratings at times. And that's an easy question in some ways, whether you like the president who's doing a, doing a good job. Then when you begin to ask questions, do you have in polling this year whether you should be re-elected? You get in again into the 60, 70 percent of the vote. Um, the thing is that when you look at the, at the focus group researches, and I've seen some of it, and I've talked to people who have seen some of it around Michael D., you need to look at what are the reasons why people want him to be their president again. And it is not only that they respect and admire him for what he's done at the, in the job, but there is actually also an extraordinary fondness for him. Mm-hmm. The kind of words and images that people put out on the table in these kind of sessions about Michael D. are as much about the fact that he visited the Munster Rugby uh, dressing room a week after Axel died or that he hugs the son of one of the victims of that tragic um, uh, helicopter accident off the west of coast in a way that in a sense is seen to embrace on behalf of the entire country. They love his dogs, they love his demeanour, they love his style, they love his intellect, they love the fact that he has carried off carefully uh, the national commemorations that we've had at a time when we're about to have some more. So I think it's deep-rooted this uh, respect and our fondness for Michael De Higgins, which is why I think it's right, it would be very difficult for anybody to displace once he entered the contest. The same research shows that there are two other, there are two questions in the people's mind. One of which they dismiss very quickly, which is that he said he said a year he said uh, seven years ago, nearly seven years ago, that he would only contest a single term. People say, yeah, that's all well and good. In fact, he looks healthier now. I did he did seven years ago because he had a knee operation. He was awaiting at the time. The second question people ask is, what about his age? And the fact that he'd be into his mid-80s by the time he finishes his presidential terms. And people's response to that is, well, again, does he look um, up to the job? And I think the health question, as I, the way I put it, is it's a question that is properly and appropriately asked. He answers it and answers it, answers it well. What I think will be the most interesting question about this uh, presidential election campaign is how precisely an incumbent president can run for re-election. Mm. The Constitution is peculiar. It enables him to renominate himself. And he'll be the first president to do that, because if I recall correctly, Eamon de Valera actually let Fianna Fáil renominate him and ran as a Fianna Fáil candidate in 1966. And the other thing is that the electoral law environment 
the law around the use of public funds or the risk of the misuse of public funds for any campaigning purposes has been transformed in the last 50 years. So too has both the broadcasting environment and the law around the quality coverage in broadcasting. And so a scenario like 1966 where De Valera said, I'm not running a campaign, I am touring the country to commemorate the 1916 rising at 50th anniversary events all over the country, but I'm not campaigning for the presidential election. I'm therefore insisting and requiring that the and uh, emerging television service and radio service um, could could not and did not cover, cover the campaign of Tom Higgins. That's what happened 50 years ago in the current environment. In the next uh, four months, it would be extraordinary to think be- the president could... Because yeah, because presidential elections have turned into rather rather brutal examinations of the candidates, and I, I, I wonder will that kind of strength of feeling and affection and support for Michael D that you've identified uh, in in that research that you cited a while ago will that survive the or will it be dented by the sort of examination that he can probably expect and that he might have to some degree escaped the last time uh, in, well, in the course Well, of well I suppose the answer to your question is in the second part of that question. He escaped and avoided the last time in part as I think famously summarised by Pat Kenny in the one question Michael D. Higgins was asked that night at the famous frontline debate and that did it Sean Gallagher's chances was and Pat Kenny said to him, do you think that you've made a mistake by staying so presidential during the course of the campaign? Mm. He managed to stay above the fray the last time he was a man who was in public life for decades, uh, so in a sense, much about him was uh, known, uh, both in the, in the leader and in the political system and publicly. So there's every possibility um, that the public, having had him as their president for seven years, uh, know who he is and know what the personality is. Well, of course, they don't know necessarily if that uh, political dimensions and personality of the candidates who might oppose him. And what mm-hmm. would be very strange to see, for example, is that those candidates would undergo rigorous um, kind of uh, cross-examination and examination during the course of a presidential election campaign, but that the president might somehow expect not to have to, or, or, or that the media would be inclined or disposed not to do that. I mean, in the last 10 days of the presidential campaign, the last presidential election campaign in 2011, if I remember correctly, there were about seven head-to-head debates between all of the candidates. Remember that moving roadshow from radio studio to radio studio and television right. studio to television studio? Uh, they, you know, the, the notion that the president can, can, can take a view that he won't participate in those, I'm not saying that he will, but he'll either have to participate in them and get into the fray or try and avoid them and, and surrogates or something because of the obligations that would be on the broadcast in particular. Yeah. To, to that extent, it would be fascinating if there was an election campaign. Fascinating to like you and me. I'm not sure the public are two-minded one way or the other way. Uh, you uh, you mentioned uh, Sean Gallagher there and he made uh, an intriguing intervention yesterday calling on local authorities to schedule meetings at which they could uh, nom- nominate candidates. Uh, you're an old mucker of his from the days when you were young blades about town. What do you think he's up to? I genuinely don't know. Um, his uh, mobile is going to voicemail. Um, he uh, we, I did have a conversation with him. As he did, he had several public conversations at the time of his uh, settlement with RTE arising from the frontline uh, debate of the last presidential campaign. And he has never ruled out the possibility of contesting the election. Do you think that's he, a prospect? I, I, I'd have to say, if you were minded to contest the presidential election, then the way to frame an entry into the race would be to do something like send a letter to the mayors and chairs of county councils along the line he did yesterday. That still gives you the room to pull back from any such uh, push or to deny you ever intended any such entry into the race. 
uh, in a few weeks' time, depending on how things uh, shapes up. I, I suppose I'll say this much. Sean Gallagher, as a candidate, was underestimated dramatically by all of us uh, in 2011 and came extraordinarily close to winning the presidency. Uh, the difficulty is this time he would be running against an incumbent, a very strong incumbent, and an incumbent who beat him the last time, which you remember. OK, listen, thanks very much, Noel. Well, we've all that to look forward to during the silly season, uh, which is just as well, really, because it seems that all the talk last week of an early election or the Taoiseach uh, going to the country in September seems to have abated a bit this week. Fiek, are we in the clear on that? I don't think we're quite in the clear. I just think a couple of developments have happened in recent weeks that make it less likely. Um, one, I think Fine Gael's aggression on renegotiating confidence supply early, they've eased off on that from following a number of, again, very firm signals from Fianna Fáil that we're not going to go there early. We may talk to you about talks before the budget, but the agreement is quite clear since the end of 2018. And Michal Martin has boxed Farad Karaf on a number of fronts. Can't call an election about Brexit because the Fianna Fáil leader is fully on side with the national interest on that, although he will criticise the strategy and accuse him of hoping to backstop, etc. They seem to be fully on side with the budget, so Varadkar's kind of running out of excuses and he's reduced to a situation where he's going to call an election because Michal Martin won't talk to him for another eight weeks, which is mildly ridiculous, let's be honest. Um, so I think it seems to have abated somewhat. And the fact that we may now have a presidential election with two referendums would add a complicating element to the mix as well. So look, we don't know. Um, there may be a bit more kind of shoulder jutting over the coming weeks and next week in September about renegotiating confidence supply. But I, I think it has receded into the, the middle distance somewhat and the more likely situation now is that confidence supply is extended for a period of time to cover the next phase of Brexit, the October summit, the December summit, if it's be one, the actual date of Brexit itself and then perhaps another budget. So I think that's the more likely scenario as of now. Sarah, you're off to Croatia next week to celebrate their win in the World Cup. Will you be checking your phone a little less nervously uh, for news of an early election here? Well, I can't say I would have been checking my phone looking for reports of an early election Should either be checking way. checking the phone to see Jared Crockwell's <laughs> progress on getting a nomination to the presidency. I can confirm neither of those things will be happening. <laughs> and if either of you try to ring me when I'm on my holidays, I will not be picking up the call, regardless of whether there's a general election, presidential election, early budget or anything in between. The outbreak of war. <laughs> I will be in Croatia, uh, hopefully celebrating Croatia's uh, victory in the World Cup. Uh, but uh, look, I, I said it here last week, I stand by it, I don't think there's going to be an early election. Uh, it would be, now that, as Fiat says, there's a presidential election. It makes absolutely no sense for anybody to call one in September. I think we're all just very happy that we're going on our holidays. <laughs> Some of us are going on our holidays. And we don't care what happens between then and now. And that is the level of enthusiasm that we bring to you here uh, every week. Uh, My thanks to Fia and Sarah this morning, and we'll talk to you next week.